This podcast is brought to you by Upcase. Improve your development skills by completing coding exercises that are peer-reviewed by real humans. Learn more at upcase.com. I'm just going to keep doing S sounds because I'm just driving Mark crazy. <laughs> Focus on the S's. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you could like hang some velvet drapes in there or something. Ooh, that'd look nice. Yeah. That would help me. That would set the mood. <laughs> Make me comfortable. <laughs> Hey everybody, this is Gordon in Austin. This is Mark in San Francisco. This is Jack in Stockholm. And this is Build Phase. How y'all been? It's been a long week. Pretty lengthy. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like it's been forever since I've been on the show. Mm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Same. Me too. So I finished my move. That's happened in the last week. I'm in Austin now. Yeah, you did that whole cross-country tour, right? That whole five-month trip in seven days. (laughs) In a week. Just time dilation. Amazing. (laughs) How do you do it? You know, hard work, solid effort. (laughs) Do you have any fun stories from that trip you want to share? None that I can think of off the top of my head. If they come up, I'll share them. I just, you know, there's nothing that jumps out at me. I think a lot of the stories I've heard from you about that trip are kind of the opposite of fun. Oh, shitty stories? Yeah. I have plenty of shitty (laughs) stories. Might be fun to share, though. They're not fun stories. Yeah, I have plenty of shitty stories. Like, all of Chicago. (laughs) Chicago's a (laughs) shitty story. (laughs) One, White Sox. Really? (laughs) How the hell are they so good? I don't want to get into a bunch of baseball stuff because we're going to quickly lose Jack. But (laughs) (laughs) I can take it. I can fake talk sports ball. (laughs) The White Sox shouldn't be as good as they are. The Cubs stole Club Astro and then called it Club Cub, which is horrible. <laughs> and then the media went ape shit about it, like a bunch of idiots. Anyway, so when we were in Chicago, so we were in Chicago, like, I don't know, three days ago. And we had, like, this apartment that was up in Edgewater, which is, like, north of the city. And it was like, it felt like squatting and it was in, through Airbnb and it felt like squatting in some college chick's dorm. It was like, just <laughs> like all of her stuff was everywhere. So like we couldn't unpack. There was no, nowhere to put our stuff. And we had like five months worth of stuff with us. So we couldn't unpack. We couldn't do anything. And then like there was a gas leak at one point. So we had to like air out the apartment. And I think that let bugs in because then we got hit with like a nasty bug infestation right after where we were just getting eaten to hell. We ended up packing in the middle of the night, like literally at like two o'clock in the morning, packing up our car and leaving as early as possible and going and getting a hotel downtown. You know, I take it back. That is a fun story. (laughs) (laughs) Irvy was, my, my wife was getting tattoos along the way. Like she started with bird tattoos mainly. But she's getting tattoos in every state that we were in, except for Chicago, which is she got a dragonfly tattoo because it was all bugs. So it's like birds for everywhere, <laughs> except for Chicago is represented by a bug. <laughs> that was good. Nice. Anyway, yeah, I don't know. I'll have more stories, I'm sure. It was a it was a really good trip. I'm happy to be settled. I'm finally like feeling like I'm getting back into a routine and getting back. I mean, not that I ever left work. Like, I I worked the whole time. But, right. you know, here in the Austin office now, and things are good. Good, good, good. Cool. 
And it is exceedingly warm and sunny here. It is like 90 outside, which is like 30 Celsius. Well, here in Stockholm today, it actually got up around, for sure, over 70, which seems really, good. really warm by our standards. That's so pretty good. Is that, is that C nice. or F? C. 70 that degrees 70. Celsius. It's <laughs> roughly 170 <laughs> degrees Fahrenheit. My skin is burned off of my face. <laughs> no, but about 70 Fahrenheit. I'm trying to adjust for the dumb Americans. Typically, probably American listeners that we the have. The dumb ones. Mostly. Do you think in metric now, Jack? Or do you still think in imperial units? A bit of both. Like, I know conceptually what 20 degrees Celsius is and what 70 degrees Fahrenheit is, but I kind of, I, I don't really have it automatically mapped in my head. Like, I know, like, I have certain sort of keystone points. Like, I know that 30 Celsius is basically 90 Fahrenheit. And, like, so that's kind of always my, my target. Like, in Stockholm, it can occasionally get up to that temperature. And I'm like, oh, wow, it's now, like, the minimum temperature in Houston during the summer. Mm. So that's kind of what I think about. But, yeah, I don't know. I'm pretty good with metric now. I actually switched my phone over to metric after NS North last year, I don't remember if we talked about this, but after NS North last year, I switched my phone over to metric system because the organizers for NS North, not in 2016, 2015, they were talking about mm -hmm. like, it's going to get into double digits. And I was like, why is that? Why are you bragging about that? I don't understand <laughs> why that's a good thing. <laughs> and I felt really dumb, like not being able to understand the conversion or not have a sure. frame of reference for like what double digits means in celsius so i changed all my stuff right. over and i just kind of never changed it back okay yeah it took me a while to get used to it but i'm used to it now i don't mind it it's fine no i just i'm too lazy to go back at this point and my wife has been like it annoys my wife a lot that all my stuff is in metric and so that's kind of like a fun <laughs> reason to not change it sure anyway what's new what are y'all working on I am working on a client project that I've been on for a few months, and uh, it's going pretty well. It's actually, uh, I've kind of jumped in to help a team out and build a second app as an adjunct to their first app that they built on their own. And it's pretty good. I've, um, like their first app had kind of, it's kind of, it seems to have gone through a lot of variation in technologies over the over the year or so, I think they've been working on it. But where they landed with a, a thing where, they're like they're fetching stuff with ResKit and throwing all these things in core data as sort of a cache. And I kind of said, well, you know, that's that's all right, I guess, but you know, look at this. And so I'm introducing I'm showing them how to use, do stuff with Argo and Swish, which is what I'm using for the the new app. And uh they seem to like it. So we'll see if it becomes a way they might move the original app also, just because I think they're like I feel like their their stack is a bit too much. Like my my initial thinking was I would take kind of their stack of networking and and persistence and bring that into the other app once I'd worked out kind of like the the GUI. So the the, the main difference in these two apps is kind of it's a, a different a very different GUI for the same backend stuff. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of the the first chunk of work was all just sort of hashing out the GUI and going through various designs and stuff. And my, my first thought was, I'll take, okay, I'll take the stack that they have and bring it in. And then I started looking into what was actually needed and like the, the, you know, how much networking stuff was actually being done. And then started looking at how much code that entailed in the first app. And I was like, no, I'll just do this from scratch with Argo and Swish. 
How easy was that process? Because I imagine that once you try to separate that from an existing user interface and take it somewhere else, you start to see all the places where it's been poorly coupled. So did that go pretty well? Right. Well, so the original app is still still has the original stack. So they have not really done anything around there. But they have been doing a lot of interesting work on trying to decouple things in the original app. There was a lot of stuff that was kind of thrown together a bit too hastily, I think, and they didn't have clear like separation of concerns. I guess I was asking, was it easy to extract that stack? Oh, let's think. I, n- I never really did. Like, I began looking at what their stack looked like, and that's kind of when I realized, okay, this is so, so involved and has so many pieces that are all tied closer together that it's going to be hard to apply this to what I've been doing. Got it. Figured it would be quicker for me to just do it all from scratch. So that's what I've been doing for a while here. How's it been working with Argo and Swish? Because you're not you you kind of came. I don't even remember if. Swish, if we've ever talked about Swish, I feel like that might have been since we... I think Swish is something that was... The entire development of Swish has been in the last week. (laughs) Right. Yeah. (laughs) Right. So that's the covers the whole lifespan of Swish so far. Such a busy (laughs) week. So much has happened. Yeah, I think so too. But so yeah, so so I used Swish on the previous client project I was on as well, Mm -hmm. where on that one, we had basically taken kind of a lot of the work that you and Sid and him doing another project and kind of lifted that... pretty much that exact same architecture out and started working on a new mm-hmm. app. And uh which you also worked on later, that same app. So so I've been, I've used it before and uh it's always a thing where I'm pretty comfortable using Argo once I'm up and running with it, but as soon as I have a new project and I'm starting off, I have to like I feel like I'm being born again. I have to sort of figure all this stuff mm-hmm. out again. And it's kind of the same thing with Swish. I kind of have to like re remember all the peculiarities of it. And I mean, most of that just has to do with like the way the compiler tells you stuff when things are not right, right, you know. But I think it's a very typical Swift problem where any kind of error in the code gets often expressed as, well, this type isn't the the type I was expecting in this other spot. And you're like, wait a minute, but that's not even, you know, that's like somewhere else. Like it's very often reporting an error that seems to be somewhere else than what you're expecting the error should be reported. Yeah. And does not really, is often not that helpful. Yeah, yeah. So just to back up, because Mark not, I mean, I think, Mark, you know what Swish is, but I, we haven't even really talked about it all that much, right? Yeah, it's it's a set of interfaces around asynchronous requesting and responsing, right? And and aside from the dependency on NSURL URL request, there's nothing really tying it directly to networking. Right? No, it, I mean, it can go in that direction. But right now, it is very much... URL request based. So yes, there are a set of interfaces. So it's a protocol based networking library is essentially the way I've been thinking of it. It's kind of an iteration on this stack that, you know, I, me and Tony started writing way back when. And then the stack that Mark and I used on our one project together and then kept rewriting it and rewriting it and rewriting it. And then Swish came out and we rewrote it a few more times. And it's kind of like another iteration on that. The just being that everything is broken down into multiple steps. So you have at the very bottom layer, you have this request performer. And this might be what you were talking about, Mark, is that this request performer is the only thing that's actually URL request dependent. Like it's the only thing that actually connects a URL re- like does any URL request. So it it basically takes an NSURL request and returns 
some parsed data, like some basically parsed data, essentially. It basically returns a response. And then above that, you have a client that takes these request objects, not an NSURL request, but like a it's a request object that Swish defines. So it takes these request objects, builds the NSURL request out of them, and then passes that to the performer, and then does all of the JSON parsing, we're assuming JSON parsing, from the result of that URL request operation. So then you have these request objects, and the request objects can define what kind of thing are they returning, how do you build a request, how do you parse a response. And then we have some default stuff in there if you fall under these special cases. Specifically, if you're using Argo, it becomes very, very easy to use because we can basically infer a lot once you have Argo in your stack. So like if the object that you expect to get back is decodable through Argo, then we can just decode it for you. You don't even have to write a parse method yourself for the request. And same thing if it's like a collection of decodable objects, we can write that parse method for you. So the idea was like reduce the amount of boilerplate we're having to write with Argo to use Argo with networking. So we've one of the, we have talked, I don't know what show, what episode number it was, but we have talked about basically this stack before and that the benefit of this stack is essentially that everything becomes super, super testable because everything is protocol based. It's all driven by interfaces. You can test your network expectations by testing these request objects that never actually touch the network, right? You can just like have these request objects build an NSURL request and then make assertions based on that request. And then you can hand these request objects JSON and make assertions based on the way they parse that JSON. You know, so like all that stuff becomes very, very, very testable. Even And then because the API client itself is a protocol and then the request performer is a protocol, those are easily injected into one another or whatever. And you can like fake stuff out super easily you can kind of do whatever you want. You can mix and match. They're easy to wrap, kind of whatever you want to do. So that's the gist of what Swish does. But it does a lot of this through generics and protocol extensions and that kind of thing, which then lead to what Jack was talking about, which is just like horribly unreadable errors when you get something right. Or recently, we've been seeing seg faults more even than mm, errors. Yeah. Like it'll compile and then the compiler will just segfault instead of emitting an error. Yeah. And it's for stupid stuff too. Like we change so one one problem with it right now is that we haven't released any versioning on it. We've been using it basically internally, so it hasn't had any versioning done to it. Which means we just keep pointing at master and so shit just gets updated out from underneath us. So one of the things we did is like we originally were using NS error as the result, the failure type, right? Once you go through this whole chain, we changed that to swish error, right? A custom error enum that like has more error information in it. And so we changed that. But when you compile old swish code that uses NS error, it doesn't fail to compile. It seg faults during compilation. And you just have to know, oh, I have to go back and change 
NS error to swish error. And then we also renamed an associated type from response type to response object. And if you don't update that, it segfaults. It's like all these weird places where people will come to us. Very few people are using this library right now other than us. But we've had a couple of people saying like, what, what is happening? Like I just updated this and I'm getting all these segfaults and I don't understand what's going on. And it's like, oh, yeah, show me your code. You need to rename this, rename this, rename this. And then even if you can get past those segfaults, if you do things wrong or if you don't set stuff up exactly right, the compiler emits these kind of unreadable, ambiguous errors that don't point you in the right direction and sometimes are just red herrings themselves. Argo suffers from this issue, right? Like if you use the wrong operator in one place, it won't tell you the error where the error actually is. Instead, it'll give you some error four or five lines above that says something generically about that a type isn't correct. You have to know how to parse that error message to know that the type isn't correct. And then it gives you no hint as to what it expects to see and what it is seeing. You just have Mm -hmm. to then go step through line by line and say, I know this is right. I know this is right. I know this is right. Oh, that actually looks a little bit wrong, which is frustrating. The NS error switch error thing is is interesting to me because the only thing I can think of is that because NS error implicitly is an Mm -hmm. error type and you've just added a new error type, right, and then swapped them out. Is that why it's getting confused? Why at compile time it's thinking that like NS error is still valid for this type, but then it's actually segfaulting later? I don't think so because we're not doing any, we don't have any constraint on error type. Like we're not using error type anywhere in our, in Swish. Like I don't think that string appears anywhere. Oh, it does. It does because Swish error is, is an error type. And result has a constraint on so specifically these things the all these methods are returning a result of t dot response object where t is a request for the success case and swish error for the failure case which used to be ns error but that made a yeah i wonder if this is another error type thing because result has a type constraint on the error case that it has to be an error type hmm. so i wonder if it's trying to coerce it could be that doesn't explain the other segfault. No, that, it doesn't explain the other one. But I do wonder if it would segfault if you would clean the build after updating Switch to this version. Mm-hmm. And if there's just actually just some like compiled product hanging around where it like glances at it and goes, oh, yeah, they're both error types. And then it gets down to it and it's like, oh, wait, no. Oh, that's a good point. They're not error types. I wonder if it might be that just cleaning the build. Maybe. FUX code again. Maybe. Anyway, that error messaging stuff is like... It feels like the one place in Swish... Sorry. This is the problem with naming all of my projects to start with SW. <laughs> like that sw sound. Is it like I keep mixing them up in my head? So sure. I'll go through like a 30-minute conversation talking about Swish when I'm actually talking about Swift. <laughs> like the Swish type system, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Stupid. My brain's dumb. But this error messaging stuff does feel like the one place in Swift that hasn't been getting better. Right. Well, I I think it has gotten a little better, but it's still not enough. Like there's still some gaping holes where where almost anything you do, it's going to tell you that, oh, in in certain situations, no matter what you do that is wrong, that it'll say, well, this is, you know, this is a type mismatch. And, Mm -hmm. And, you know, in some sense, sure, yes. 
But in, but in another sense, it's like, well, but I would like to know, you know, can you get, be more specific? Like, you know, what is actually, you know, what where is the actual thing that is wrong? You know, because sometimes it becomes a thing where it's a, it's a very complex type that has sort of, you know, a lot of things and nested stuff. And it says, okay, this type is not the same as that type that I expected. But it can be very hard to like eyeball that and try to understand, okay, why it looks right to me. Like, why is this not the thing? Like I had this with the thing you mentioned about the response type that got renamed to response object. And I was like just staring myself blind at this thing, trying to figure it out. And it wasn't until I posted in Slack and I think it was, I think it was you who, who figured it out. But it's one of these things where it's just like, it's just so unobvious what's going on sometimes with these errors. Yeah. And so it, that kind of thing is frustrating because like, yes, we should have versioned, right? And so you would have had to make a version bump and you would have... Right. To, to get that change. Like, that, was, that kind of thing was frustrating for a number of reasons, like, aside from the type error, right? right? That we just kind of made all these changes out from under you. But like, even if we had done a version bump, if we had done this correct... Like, my big problem is that had we done this correctly... Say we did this in Argo, right? Which is used far more than Swish is, mm -hmm. right? We made a similar change and Semver did the whole thing right, bumped the major version number, wrote in a, we can write in our release notes saying we renamed this to this, whatever. Users decide to make that upgrade. All of a sudden their project seg faults. Right. And it looks like it's our fault and it's not. Right. right. Like there's no way on my end I could have written I could have done anything differently to prevent those seg faults yeah. in your code. Yep. That kind of thing is what's frustrating to me personally. But we're also seeing like old stuff pop up that I don't feel like should be coming back. Like using a flat map operator or even the flat map method mm -hmm. is throwing seg faults now hmm. in some people's code. And that's something that we ran into before FlatMap was added to the standard library. We're right. seeing people that you couldn't use FlatMap with specific methods because it would segfault the compiler. Or specifically, it would only segfault the compiler under release mode. Oh. Right? Yeah. These kind of things. These compiler optimizations around FlatMap. Right. That was a thing that was happening Swift 1.x, mm -hmm. right? Pre-flat map 2014. These things... 2014? Probably. Is that... That's when Swift came out. Yeah. Anyway. Like, that was the thing that was happening, and then it got fixed, and all of a sudden, more recent builds, we've seen it pop up again, where I'm having to recommend that people in Argo basically write their own function that internally, it's like a... So, monomorphized is a word <laughs> that, that I learned recently or monomorphism is a word that I learned recently by just hearing Sean Griffin say it on another podcast of ours called the bike shed. He just says it over and over and over and never explains what it is. And then <laughs> I went and looked it up. And so I'm going to be a better podcast host and explain what it is. Good. So monomorphism is like the dual of polymorphism, right? Mm -hmm. So where polymorphism is, I'm going to take one thing or I'm going to take many things and be able to treat them as one thing, right? Right. Like generics, for example, Right? Like I write a generic function, that's a polymorphic function. It's polymorphic over T. Right. Right. A monomorphic function is I take one function that can do a bunch of things and specialize it for a specific thing. So instead of where flat map itself is polymorphic because it is a generic, I can write a monomorphized version of flat map 
that works on a specific type hmm. instead of working on any type. Okay. So I've had to suggest to people recently that we're trying to use flat map in their apps, in their client code. I've had to suggest to people recently that they write a basically a monomorphized function that acts like flat map internally, but then just doesn't take another so instead of instead of writing a function that goes from T to decoded T, this is gonna mm. be weird. Instead of writing a function that goes from T to decoded T and then flat mapping that function mm-hmm. over the value. They write a function from decoded T to decoded T, and they basically inline that flat map, that same flat map behavior inside the body of that function. Hmm. But where T is specialized, right? So, right. like, go from decoded string to decoded date. Okay. And a state, right? Write that function instead of writing a function that goes from string to NS date hmm. and using the polymorphic flat map stuff. And all of a sudden, all their compiler problems go away. Why? Like, that's. <laughs> It's it's frustrating, right? That because that right. that is an old. It, I don't think most people would recognize that as being an old issue that's popped up. But like we were dealing with that a year and a half ago, constantly, and so all of a sudden seeing this pop up again, it's like frustrating. I wonder if that's something that uh, we could try and help out with in terms of the test suite for Swift itself. You know, because like that's something that should oh, be yeah. easy to to test and see. Okay does flat map work for all these special cases that we know we need to handle? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it would also be able to, you know, a good way to show Apple exactly where, you know, where it's broken. Say, look, this is broken today. <laughs> can you submit failing tests? Do, do either of y'all know that if you can just submit failing tests to the Swift repo? I do not know. Like, you can definitely submit a failing test or a test that would have failed and then the change to fix it. Right. But I don't know that you can just su- just submit a failing test. Yeah, probably not. But like, I guess that if you know enough to spot the problem, but don't know enough to how to fix the problem, you can submit a pull request anyway and say, hey, I don't actually have the fix here, but I want you to see what the problem is. Mm. And maybe someone, someone smarter than us can figure it out. Does Argo define a version of flat map? Yeah, for decoding. And so this is happening in consumer code around where they're using Argo, but when they're actually trying to use Swift flat map, that's where it's segfaulting? No. It's using Argo's version of flat map. Usually the operator, because we define the operator, and that's not in the standard library. But even if they switch to the actual function dot flat map, they still run into this and issue. Are you saying they're only seeing this when they have like whole module optimization turned yeah, on? Yeah, or or just like the whatever the default optimization not not whole module, but just whatever the default optimizations are under the release scheme. So like not oh none, right? Mm-hmm. I think just dash o, right? Which just not not even whole module optimization, just normal Swift compiler optimizations, right? Is there a difference if they use a pre-built binary or if they compile it alongside their application? As in pull the Argo source code into their project and compile it versus right, I'm wondering it, building it with... Just yeah. linking. Just linking dynamically to it, yeah. Does that make a difference? I have no idea. I didn't ask. Or I didn't think to ask. That is a good point, though, because there's so many bugs around that in general. Yeah, I was wondering because, like, since you've defined a method with the same name that's like roughly the same shape as this one that's in Swift, mm-hmm. when it goes to specialize that method, it's maybe using the wrong one. 
So I would expect it to happen with optimizations on and when they are compiling everything together. But I'm not sure that would happen if it's a binary. Yeah. That feels like a big bug if it confused that, though. Because the types aren't the same. Like, it's the same basic shape. But, like, I can't see... One, it happens with the operator, not just with the method. And because it happens with the operator, like, that's not defined in the standard lib at all. So maybe, like, okay, that one could... In theory, you go down that same road, that one could be confused with the result one, which ships in the result lib. But I would be impressed if the compiler is confusing result of T E with decoded T, right? Yeah. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. Or even result of T and optional of T. Like, I would be really impressed if the... Because, like... If the compiler is able to confuse those things, then it would mean then monads are almost possible, right? Because it would mean that it recognizes that decoded and optional are basically the same. And if it can recognize that decoded, which, like, none of this makes any sense, right? right? How could it possibly? There, There's no... You would need a monad type class here to indicate to the compiler that they're the same. Right. And the only, the only thing similar about them is that they are generic over some right. type. That's which it. The compiler cannot no. do. It cannot say that. No, it should have no idea. Right. And yet we're clearly hitting something where the compiler is just like, I have no clue. I give up. But the <laughs> fact that you can explicitly define your own specialized function right. and then that straightens right. it out tells me that like the problem is ambiguity in like a specialized function. I I is that, Gordon, is this something that happens at compile time or when they run? Compile time. Compile time. We used to have runtime errors too. So like not, you know, I don't mean to be just kind of like shitting on the whole thing. Like it's definitely gotten better. We used to have runtime failures when these flat map functions got hit. But this is just a this is a compiler error and yeah. is specifically this segfault eleven, which should be like a bigger joke by now. Like why like how long did it take for the source kit crashing stuff to become like a meme inside the community? And we don't like I can't think of a single segfault eleven joke, but I see it constantly. Right. I think it's just easy to pick on IDEs, but like it's hard to pick on a compiler because someone can just be like, well, why don't you go fix it then? You're like, oh, well, I don't understand how they work, though. <laughs> For real, though, if I had to fix the Swift compiler, if I accidentally got a job at Apple and they were like, go fix the Swift compiler, I'd be like, no, thank you. I quit. <laughs> <laughs> go, like, work in a pizza shop or something instead. <laughs> yeah, that stuff gets pretty hairy, I imagine. And it's all in C++. Yeah, that too. I don't have time to learn C++. No, life's too short. Does your Argo version of FlatMap on Decoded, I'm looking at it right now, does it not throw and rethrow on purpose? Uh, no, we just haven't gotten there yet. We at ThoughtBot, I think, basically do not use try-catch stuff. We just tend to not use it. We tend to wrap stuff in results. Like most of the projects I've been on have almost explicit, like not even, it's not even like there's no thing here where we're like, don't use try catch. But like, I feel like we will use them and then try to find ways around them 
using like try question mark or wrapping something in a result or whatever. So we end up just kind of not hitting those things too often. So it's like, it's an open issue on Argo. Like if you want to contribute to Argo and you want a super simple thing to do, adding throw and rethrows annotations to basically all of the higher order functions in Argo would be awesome. And I would thank you for it. But it's just not, you know, it's like a thing that's sitting there that like I need, someone needs to do that I just haven't had time to do it. I think it can make sense when you're talking about like subroutines that can fail in a lot of ways though, that that the, like all of those private constituent methods can throw if like the top level public methods, you know, wrap their implementations in a in a do catch and then convert that to a result though. It's definitely been advantageous for me to write very specialized, it, it almost ends up like, I usually use it around like procedural methods. So, like it doesn't make sense to break it out. I'm doing this. I'm converting this into this. This can throw. And then I'm doing this step and this can throw. It's really easy to like not try to catch that there and convert it to a result. Just let everything throw all the way up to some level where it's kind of coming together into a public API and then just go, okay, well, I'm just going to capture everything that's thrown and convert this mm -hmm. into a result at this point. Yeah, I get that. I think that in general, like I would prefer that to be a pipeline like more of a monadic pipeline like you could still have that same behavior implicitly without kind of this invisible error type stuff going on like if each of those functions instead of saying that they threw if each of those functions said that they returned a result the do try catch stuff in swift is in practice used a lot as a specialized version of do like basically do syntax in Haskell, where do syntax in Haskell, not to get too deep in this stuff, but like do syntax in Haskell is is any kind of failable operations, chaining failable operations procedurally. Do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. You just say do, and then you have basically a list of every, each line, you know, do this thing, do this thing, do this thing. And each one of those can return a value. And if that value is a failure, then it short circuits right there and returns that failure up to the top. The difference is that you maintain a consistent type signature across all of them. So like in the case you're talking about where it becomes cumbersome is like you can look at Swish actually is a good example of where this is semi cumbersome because we use flat map in that way where it turns it into monadic pipeline, do this thing and then pass the result to this thing and then pass the result to this thing and then pass the result to this thing, so on and so forth. And if any one of those decoding steps fails, then it short circuits the whole thing and returns that error, right? But you can be generic over the success value. So the success value can change with each one of those things, but the error case has to stay consistent. So that's why each step in the chain has to return the same kind of error type, which is basically the big complaint or the big the biggest argument that I keep seeing against a result type in the standard lib or using a result type in the standard lib from like the compiler, like the Swift engineers, is that if multiple things throw different types of errors, it's hard to encapsulate that in a type which is not wrong 
but you can go look at swish error and see what that would look like, right? That is like, if you go look at the swish error type, there's like a invalid JSON response, server error, JSON parse error, I think. You know, there are multiple errors in there that represent possible things that could have failed inside the pipeline. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. It's just kind of like we're talking about the same thing. Like you and I right now are talking like you're wanting to do everything procedurally and then wrap it in a result above and my wanting everything to be contained in like a more of a monadic pipeline kind of a thing. Those are very much the same. We're not actually approaching those two things differently. We're just, in my case, I'm putting arbitrary restrictions on myself because now I need to make sure that my types line up throughout my pipeline. And in your case, you're putting arbitrary restrictions on yourself because now you kind of don't know what error you might get out of this other than this vague error type thing. And you're kind of mixing metaphors a little bit. I don't fault anyone for using try-catch stuff. Do try-catch, whatever the hell. I don't even know how to, whatever. I don't, I don't fault anyone from using the Swift error handling. And I'm not even really surprised at this point that people prefer it because it's baked into the language so nicely. But for me, coming from a strong type standpoint, it's just hard for me to rationalize that inside my mental model of how I want things to work. Well, I think another aspect of this is that like before Swift's new error stuff came into existence, we were already using results right. because of, you know, you and Tony have done Haskell and things. So like that became like a, a nice habitual way to do things like, okay, we want to have a thing where, you know, it's either got a success or a failure and we want to encapsulate that. And so that once you learn that, it becomes sort of a, an easy thing to jump into. And the, what is now the swift way of doing things with, with the do, try, catch, you know, seems foreign and cumbersome. Right. But, it, but, but I think that like over time, we're going to see like how much, you know, like you said, because the result is not in the standard library, like how much the community will, will people be using result at all in five years? Or will everyone be saying, well, you know, we're using Swift errors, of course, because that's what we do. In my specific example, I'm, I'm wrapping lots of calls to like core graphics, to right. UI kit, things that do throw. Right, right, right. For instance, right. in this very specific example, I have a library uh, internal to Venmo, which will take an image and like a cropping strategy and a size and like a maximum file size limit, and it will get you the best possible image with all of those constraints. And so that's me like, you know, compressing and uncompressing data, you know, trying to resize it, all of these things throw. So it's really, really easy to just have all of my internals assume that they will continue to throw, but it, it all chokes off at this like one public method. Mm -hmm. And at that point, like I'm already not, like I already don't really know what my errors are anyway. Right. Because um, they're so all, I'm just roughly all, converting yeah. them. Yeah. Yeah. yeah mm -hmm. Into some like basic cases that I've defined and then I pass those back out. And in fact, I'm using the same error enum as like the error type in result. Yeah. It's kind of what I was saying earlier, right? It's baked into the language very nicely. And a lot of the Cocoa APIs have been translated to use it. So like everything that would normally take an error pointer is now throwing, we assume, an NS error, right? Right. Although there's no way to really know. <laughs> <laughs> and so like, yeah, in that case, you could wrap each of those in a result manually. But that is just such a pain in the ass. 
that it's probably not worth it. Right. Even if we had a syntax that was like, here's a block or a closure and anything. Well, we do have that. We have materialize. So you could write all, you could wrap that whole thing in materialize and which is just a free function that is kind of not really well named, whatever, but you could wrap all of that in materialize and just put, try this, try that, try this, try that, you know, and then that would give you a result back, but that's the same thing that you're doing now. So it's not necessarily worth, you know what I mean? It's like the same thing, like, Converting back and forth between throws and results is trivial enough that it kind of makes sense to push stuff. If you're going to, if you have to do that, especially with core, like internal or um, Cocoa APIs, it makes sense to push it all down lower, I think. Wrap it in one place, like you said. Yeah, because I think sometimes also in those cases where, like you said, you're calling some Cocoa stuff and some core graphics things, you don't know what the errors are going to be. At some point, you don't probably necessarily even care. Like if it's something that the user is going to see, okay, something went wrong, right? You just, you just have to sort of at some point kind of punt and say, well, something happened and say, you know, give them a chance to retry it or whatever, however you're going to handle that. Yeah. But it's, it's always the case with anything that can give you an error from Coco, like you don't know what it's going to be. And like you might have a whole different error you get back in the next major OS release that'll find some other way to trip you up. So there's no point trying to check all those. You just want to say, okay, Something went wrong. Yep. And let the user yeah, try I pretty much disregard them. Yep. Except I, I look at, you know, what is the thing that I just did? And I'm going to, like, call this, okay, a decode failed. Right. Like the specifics of why it failed, that's going to be, that, that's irrelevant to me. Like, let alone the consumer is absolutely not going to care. And I'm not even sure, like, that's useful information to propagate out. Right. Like, if, if, it's, right. if you can't recover from something, then what's the point? Right. We, we kind of do that. That's basically what we do in Swish, too. Is we just know that at this point, this is the error that's going to be emitted, right? And so, like, this thing failed. And so we just wrap that in a very specific failure under the Swish error name. And because we're a library, not client code, we can't really make any assumptions about what is or isn't worth knowing about. So we just kind of, like, if it was an NS error that was emitted you know, from like a invalid JSON response. We just, that case has an associated type, which is just that NS error that gets dumped into it. Or if it's a server error, we return the code and the data. Like we don't return the whole HTTP response object, but we return the data that was returned and the code because we're assuming that the server sent back JSON. Is it possible basically. to make Swish return a result of the error type if there's an API error, because that's up to the consumer to decide. Technically, everything succeeded, but you get a JSON response, you inspect it, and you see that there's actually an error, and it's more of like an application logic error. Is it possible to convert that into a Swish error type? Or are you expected to handle that sort of like once you get above Swish? So the only way Swish fails, the only way you get a failure state back from Swish is like we're very very strict about it right so like we base it off of were we able to use nsjson series i don't know the order of these these are probably out of order but it's like did nsurl session return an error if so here it is okay nsurl session didn't error what was the status code returned by the server is it inside 200 if it's not inside 200 here's what the code is and here's the data that went along with it 
were we able to use NSJSON serialization on the data held inside the response? Because now we know that it's inside 200. Okay, so we now we try to deserialize the response. Were we able to deserialize the response? If not, here's the error emitted from that. Were we able to decode the object using Argo? If not, here's the Argo error that came along with that. So we're very strict about our definitions of success and failure. Okay, so kind of because we have to be. So it's up to the consumer to decide right. what is a an application error, which which makes sense because you're just a network client, right. right? So you either say that like the machinery itself of networking has failed, or we've actually successfully gotten bytes back from a server and we've done our best to convert it for you and hand it off. Mm -hmm. My question is like, given a request, say a request to get the current user. The associated response object there is something you've defined user. It's a struct. Mm -hmm. But now let's assume that everything technically goes correct as far as the application is concerned, and you get a normal status code back. You get a response back. But it fails decoding because it's expecting to be able to turn that JSON response into a user when actually you do have this other model type that's like API error. How do you tell a request that like if you truly succeed, I should get this object, but if like if you succeed and it's a successful error, how do I map it to this object instead? Or or is that completely like above swish and that's not your concern? Basically that, but more in depth is that that really should be communicated with the response codes, the server response codes, right? Like if I ask for a user and you send me anything other than a user, then you shouldn't be returning that with a 200 status code. That should be some other status code. And that's about the only inference we can do at that level. You know what I mean? Inside Swish, as far as Swish is concerned, that's the only clue we have to what could have possibly gone wrong. We can't make assumptions on JSON structure or anything to say, like, we think this is an error, you know? So that's basically all we can do. The, the other side of it is that we tried to make that failure transformation easier. When I was in Portland, I was talking to Bernard, who's in our office out there, and we were talking about Swish. I was just kind of starting it. And one of the things I was, I was working on, I don't remember what I was working on, but I was working on something and he was asking, he misunderstood something I was saying, I think, and thought that I was talking about being able to specify what the response error would be, right? Like you're saying, if you know what the API error type should look like, Give me a, so like you said, like I know that all of my APIs, if a failure comes back from the API, it comes back in this specific JSON structure. So let me parse that into, right? Like let me decode that into my API error struct. We tried going down this route of, that's actually where I swish error was introduced in the first place is because I needed to give API consumers a better object to work with than just an NS error that they then had to pull JSON out of, do whatever. So the problem is that, that it's just not that simple, right? There are too many parts of the API. There are too many parts that could fail to make it as simple as like, give me a result of success object and failure object. Because like I said, the NSURL session itself could error. Or so how do you hand, how do you recover from that and still get that result type? Yeah. Probably not gonna happen. 
right? How do you recover from, you know, the server responding with malformed JSON? Basically, in order for that to work, you wouldn't just need a result of success type and error type. You would need a result of success type and result of error type NS error. So you would need basically a nested result where the success case is a normal object and the failure case is itself a result with the expected failure case and then all the kind of shit that could go wrong if that failed. You know what I mean? And it was just kind of like, so we went way down that road and tried it and I added, you know, I added a step in it for like transforming errors and we added that to the result API. Like you can see all this in the repo, what it looked like before. And it was just like, I started implementing it on a client project and it was just so unbelievably painful to work with. And we weren't even trying to do the thing that wasn't actually reasonably possible that I spent like five minutes fighting with it. I was like, screw this. This sucks. And we just pulled all that so crap out. Does that mean that at some point your request protocol had two associated types with it, which was like a success object no, type and an error object yeah. type? And then you always yeah. expected that the actual thing you'd get back at the end is itself a result. No, no. So I didn't want to go down the path of saying the nested result thing. That's just not reasonable, right? But the only other option is to basically push that off onto the user. So I still return, we were still returning like success case, error case, right? Just a flat object. But there was like this implied thing where we're just going to give you a swish error back. And in order to fulfill the type constraints, you have to give us whatever you told us you were going to give us. And you just kind of had to figure out how to do that. You know what I mean? Like there was a transform error object that went from swish error to response error. And you just had to basically figure that out. So, but it was never going to be as simple as, oh, we'll parse the JSON into my API error struct. But it was just like pushing that crap off on the user. And it was like, this just, it just didn't feel useful at all. Or at least it didn't feel any more useful than just handing the user a swish error in the first place and just saying, like, do whatever you need to do with this. If you want to transform it, you can absolutely do that. But putting it inside the request type just increased complexity a million times over. So if you get a 400, do you even attempt deserialization? No. So how yes. would I get that? Yes, we do. We do try. We do attempt deserialization of the data that's returned. Okay. So when the data is returned, if you get a 400, we give you a server error, which is an enum case. It has two associated objects. The first is, or two associated types, whatever. It's a multi-payload enum, right? It has two things with it. So it's got the server code, and then it's got the any object optional any object that was returned from NSJSON serialization. So we take care of the NSJSON serialization. I'm pretty sure that's true. <laughs> this could be a lie. I might be lying to you, but I'm trying not to. <laughs> so the server that I work against, all of the errors we display to the user come from the server. We're mm -hmm. expected to like uh, parse that error right. object, get the message right. out, and display it. Right. I'm not seeing how that could work with Swish, because it sounds like you're going to try to deserialize it, the any object there is actually going to be nil because it failed to turn it into, or no, I, I 
Okay, no, you, so won't, you won't get as long as you turn, turn it into JSON, I'll get that JSON object back. Correct. But it's up to me to turn it into like a domain model object. Yes. And we're actually doing that in a client application. We have like, we're wrapping this API client, the one that comes from Swish. We're wrapping that in our own API client. And inside the completion block, when we get that, so we do the, the switch stuff and we get back that final result. We just hand it to a method that like literally says notify if error. And it just checks and says, is this a failure? If it is pass the NS URL, basically I think it posts a notification and then the notification somewhere else is caught by something which pulls it out and tries to get the error messaging out of the associated JSON you know what I mean? Like exactly what you're talking about it doing, it does that. And it's fairly easy to insert that into the pipeline just by wrapping this thing. But you're working with raw JSON. You're not working with a parsed model object. Got it. So in most cases, you have to write a wrapper around Swish's client to truly be useful. If you want to do this for every network request, yeah. Which is like, you know, a few lines. It's not like it's that hard. It's not that much code. And again, all of the hard stuff in terms of thread handling and is this the right status code and all that crap, all of that crap is still handled by Swish itself, which is the stuff that you really don't want to have to write every time. Got it. So you also need a concrete implementation of request for basically every combination of like HTTP method and endpoint and parameters? Yes. You can, I mean, obviously it's just an object, right? So you can, you can write these things however you want. So if you want a user request that both creates and deletes, you could write that, right? And just have it like take an enum or something or write multiple creation methods, write your own initializers for it that create it for different endpoints. You know what I mean? Like you could have a single request object that does everything and just depending on how you initialize it, you know, because you can put all that logic in there. But it's intended to be used as here is a modeling a single interaction, a single round trip with the server. Got it. That makes sense? Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. So we're actually going to try something different going forward. We're going to go back to recording these weekly. That's the goal anyway. So we're going to go back to recording these weekly. And basically the people on the show right now, myself, Mark, Jack, are going to be basically the usual hosts. I don't think it's going to be all three of us very often. I think we're going to try to keep it to two of us at a time. But at least one of us and someone else maybe like basically we're going to rotate the hosts a little bit more. So we're not going to it's not going to be just me and Mark anymore. It's not going to be like just me and Jack. It's going to be me and Jack or Mark and Jack or me and Mark, whatever. We're going to kind of mix it up more on a weekly basis, um, which hopefully will help us get episodes out more consistently and also kind of keep stuff moving and keep conversations fresh. So. So that's kind of the plan moving forward. We actually have to, after we end this call, we should figure out how that's actually going to work because we haven't, we haven't talked about that at all. So show notes for this episode are going to be found at buildphase.fm slash 92. And as always, we'd like to hear from you. So email us at buildphase.thoughtbot.com or reach out on Twitter at buildphase. And we really appreciate ratings and reviews on iTunes. Cool. Yeah. yeah. See y'all. All right. All right. Bye. Later.